This is What's Growing On, a show where we dig up the latest dirt on Ontario horticulture production, helping producers navigate best management practices and taste the sweet success of a quality crop. I'm Christy Greg McGuffin. Join me as we talk to those in the field of fruit, vegetables, and specialty crops to find out what's really growing on. In today's episode, it's on many of our minds. Some think they aren't doing it often enough. Many aren't sure they're doing it properly. Well, others still have never done it before and don't know where to start. I'm talking about scouting. How to monitor for those common pests in the field. So when we look at the principles of integrated pest management or IPM, there's six key components. Prevention, identification, monitoring, using thresholds, control, and evaluation. The idea is that before you take action to control the pest, you need to first understand their biology and the potential economic impact to your crop, as well as if your field is actually even at risk. A regular scouting program is really the basis of IPM decision-making where you can gather current information on what the problem is, whether that's insect or disease, nutrient issues, abiotic stress. You can find out where that problem's located, and as long as follow-up is consistent, whether the control treatment, whatever that strategy might have been, was actually effective. But the question is always, how do I do it? And it can really seem like a daunting task, especially when there's so many other jobs needing doing on a farm day to day. Joining me today, I'm sharing some scouting tips and tricks of the trade with my fellow horticulture IPM specialists, Dr. Wendy McFadden-Smith and Dr. Melanie Philitas. We'll talk about, does size truly matter? Field size, that is. And how much is enough? and how to look for those difficult-to-detect problems. So, get your hand lens and flag and tape ready, because it's time to go scout. As always, if you're looking for up-to-date information about horticulture crops grown in Ontario, check out the links to our fruit, vegetable, and specialty crop blogs provided in the show notes. Melanie and Wendy, thanks for joining me today. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Just before we get into what we're going to talk about today, can you guys just give a quick intro to who you are, what crops you cover, that sort of thing? Maybe Melanie, do you want to start first? Sure. So I am a horticulture IPM specialist with OMAFRA based at the Simcoe Station, and I specialize in specialty crops. So that would be low acreage crops like hazelnuts and hops, uh, specialty vegetables like sweet potatoes, specialty berries like hascap um, and hemp, all kinds of sort of low acreage esoteric crops. Nice. And Wendy? I am a horticulture IPM specialist specializing in tender fruit and grapes. So I cover apricots, cherries, peaches, nectarines, plums and pears and table and wine grapes. Awesome. So today we're going to talk scouting, something that all of us 
do on a regular basis with our crops. But um, and also, and I do actually, I want to make just a point, kind of before we move forward. You know, the the crops that you mentioned, we're going to focus primarily today, um, talking about some of the perennial crops like tree fruit, nuts, grapes, hops, um, those things that kind of have those similarities in terms of the trellis systems and whatnot. But I think just for listeners, um, I want to just emphasize that principles and practices around scouting and monitoring um, are really applicable across the board. So even though we're talking about a specific crop, um, it can it can kind of be a, a take-home message for, for most people. But um, Let's talk big picture first. Before we get into, I've got a list of questions for you guys that we're going to go over. But when we talk about IPM and integrated pest management, one of the kind of key principles to it is this idea of scouting or monitoring for pests. So Melanie, I'm going to start with you. Can you explain why scouting is important? So sure. I'd say scouting is is really a key to IPM because it is is one of the big things that got us away from calendar spraying. It's that routine, randomized, uh, standard scouting of your crop or going through your crop to determine what pests are present and at what growth stage so you can more accurately ton your sprays uh, or any other kind of control measures that you're going to do. And so it's it's different than when you're out in the field and you're pruning or you're doing the daily maintenance and you, and you see a pest problem, uh, we tend to zero in on that. Um, and that is important, but it's also really important to be walking the field specifically to look for pests on randomly selected plants to get an overall picture of what is the pest situation in your field. Mm-hmm. And so, and Wendy, from your side with your crops, what would you say? Why is scouting important? One of the things that scouting will do is also give you a measure of whether the control practices that you've done are effective. So you get a before and an after picture of mm-hmm. what's going on in the field. So, okay, so then what are the kind of the key things that people should know before they even start scouting? Like, can you just go out to the field or what sort of things do you recommend people having kind of a basic understanding of before they start? The first thing I think is that's important is to know what the crop looks like normally, Mm. because a lot of times people will bring in a hairy leaf or or something that's a color that they're not used to, but that is how the vine or the tree grows. So you need to know what normal is before you know what abnormal is. That's a good point. Speaking of apples, a lot of times someone says, something's going on with my leaves. I've, there's, I've got a nutrient problem or there's some sort of pest that's eating my leaves. And the first question is, what are you growing? And when they come back and say, Honeycrisp, well, that's why. That's your problem. <laughs> Honeycrisp is like that. <laughs> but yeah, so that's I think that's really true. And Melanie, what about you? Yeah, no, for sure. I think also it's really important to know what are the common pests in your field or affecting your crop and what are its natural enemies? Because that's another thing that I get a lot of. I have brown marmorated stink bug and it's not brown marmorated stink bug. In fact, it's a predatory stink bug and you don't want to be controlling that because it is feeding on some of the pests in your in your field. Mm-hmm. So knowing what the common pests are will be very helpful uh, knowing where the damage is found, um, and and sort of having some background information on on that. Also, sort of being aware that there are pest issues, but that they can look a lot like other abiotic issues. So, also being aware of what's been happening in your field. Did you have a, a an ozone event? Did you have um, a frost? Because a frost can cause your plants, at least in hops, we can uh, hop frost damage can look a lot like downy mildew damage. 
Um, and then also nutrient deficiencies and herbicide injury can look a lot like pest injury as well. No, that makes sense. The crop IPM web pages are really useful for that kind of information because it, they give all kinds of, of background on the biology and also on when they're present at different times in the growing season. And pictures help too, right? Like, I mean, on crop IPM, there's, there's some pictures, but just Googling too, to kind of know what you're looking for. Because it's, you know, sometimes descriptions can be a bit misleading once you see the real thing. But sure. um, the, the crop IPM, I'll link that to uh, in the show notes so so people can have that quick link to it. Because, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's, yeah, the, having resources like that, it's really helpful. The other thing that's important is to try to get the training that is offered through the, the scout training in the spring biomafra. Um, and it's open for growers as well as, as, as uh, people who are hired as scouts. So I've often had growers attend the training sessions as well. Nice. Good omafra plugs. <laughs> well, and then the other plug would be our, our omafra blogs, like on fruit and on specialty crops. So we will, when we start hearing a lot about a pest, we'll post about that pest. Uh, so if you follow the blogs uh, and you hear, oh, leafhoppers are hitting the crops, then you know you should be going in and looking for leafhoppers. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so let's let's start talking kind of the, the nitty-gritty of scouting. So when when someone has a scout for their operation or say, um, you know, they're, do, they're doing the scouting program themselves and it's a dedicated program that they're doing, how do you suggest that they start? So, for instance, um, when should they start scouting a crop? I would say as soon as the crop starts coming up, you need to start looking for pests. Yeah, and tree fruit, it's actually dormant. We can even go yeah, earlier than that because true. you're looking for things like scales, uh, mites, you can look for scylla, you can look for mealybugs on grapevine, you can look for crown gall. So there's a lot of things that you won't be able to see once the, the crop starts growing. So you could even go in earlier than that and take a look. Mm-hmm. That That's actually a really good point. And I'm totally not thinking of one of my main crops, which is hazelnuts <laughs> and uh, eastern filbert blight. And actually the time to be hunting for eastern filbert blight lesions is in the winter when the leaves are off the tree. And that's when you're going to see the cankers. Um, I would say, though, in the in the dormant season, because the pests are not active, you probably don't need to be out there as frequently as you might need to be in the summer when the pests are active and moving around. Definitely. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. So, okay. So then uh, along that same line then, so how often then, I mean, dormant may not be as frequently. What about when you start into the season? Again, someone who has a specific scouting program, how often should they be doing that? So I would say ideally weekly, um, if you can, or, and for some pests, I think the recommendation would be even more, more frequently, but at the very least every week, mm-hmm. um, ideally uh, starting at the beginning of the season and going all the way through to harvest. And at peak periods of activity, bi-weekly may be useful to get information, especially if you're looking at pheromone traps for spray timing. Yeah, just because how quickly the populations can change. Yes. Yeah. And um, what about time of day? Does that make a difference? High noon is not the best time for scouting. Why is that? It's a lot, the the light is too bright. You need mm. You need more diffuse light. So... Um, up till 11 or after one, you don't want, you don't want the sun at, at its apex. For sure. And also not, uh, right after a rain, because that often knocks the insects off, uh, or, or puts them into hiding. And so you're not going to see what you would normally see when it's dry. Mm. Even dew can have that effect. 
for sure. For something like powdery mildew, it's a lot harder to see when there's dew on the leaves. Yeah. The Sometimes I say you have to cater it to the pest. So for hops, for top downy mildew, sometimes it's easier to be looking first thing in the morning when there is dew on the plants because then the sporulation is present. You can see that sort of purplish color and it makes it a bit easier to identify the lesions. But then, you know, for some other pests, it's a bit later in the day um, is better. But, you know, again, you can't be out all the time. So yeah. ideally, if you, you know, don't have all the all day, you pick that time an ideal time. And that's when you go out. Yeah, well, and so and speaking of the, you know, the, the rain, the one thing that I did find, I was struggling to try and find San Jose scale and working in this block, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And then all of a sudden got caught in the midst of a thunderstorm. So after waiting it out, then I went back into the orchard and it looked like it was just like covered in chicken pox. All of a sudden, once all of the bark on the tree got wet, um, then all of a sudden all the, the red spottings of San Jose scale all started showing up. So now I like mimic rain. So when I'm going in looking specifically for San Jose, I take spray bottles and just spray the tree down and that's what shows up, right? So it's, Good so idea. again, like you said that it, it depends on what you're looking for. If the general scouts, right, is a different thing. But if you've got specific pests you're looking for, there are kind of key times during the day that, that are better. Yeah, I would say so during the day that the times we talked about doing at the same time every week is ideal. But if there is damage that you just can't nail down, then think about would it be easier to see after rain or easier at night? So with with hops, sometimes you start seeing a whole lot of defoliation and you cannot find a defoliator on the hops. Uh, but if you go out at night, then you can see it's cutworms, which hide in the soil, aren't always easy to see. And then they climb up uh, the plants at nighttime and then they're very, very obvious. So um, sometimes you just might want to go at a different time to see if you can find your pest at that time. So for someone who's wanting to start scouting, what do you say, how should they start? Like, are there, for instance, um, Ritha Farm, do you take representative block sizes for what they choose? Like, how do they pick how large of a section to actually scout? So I can say that in the specialty crops, we don't have a set number of, of trees that we visit or hop plants that we visit um, because we don't have established thresholds. So I think, uh, so we do borrow from apples a lot, Christy. So a lot mm -hmm. of what you recommend, we just kind of follow that as a guide. Um, and I think in crops with thresholds, often it's, you know, you hit the threshold after you visited this number of plants and looked at this number of leaves. Mm -hmm. um, so what we what I start by telling is pick what you have time for. So more is always better. The more trees you visit, the more leaves you look at on the tree, um, the more of a representative amount uh, or a representative picture you would get. But if you pick so many that you do it really enthusiastically the first couple of weeks, and then you find that it takes, you know, four hours to get through the whole farm and you can't keep that up, then it's better to cut that down. It's better to do a little bit less but be able to consistently do it every single week. Um, and so what we suggest is to, you do kind of want to break it up according to tree or plant age. So I might look at a younger hop yard uh, as one block and an older hop yard as another. Um, same thing with hazelnuts. Um, and I also might like to go by variety, not necessarily every variety, but for example, in hops, our bittering hops and our aroma hops have, uh, sometimes they, they can be more or less attractive to certain insect pests. Mm -hmm. um, so I might, I might block it that way. 
Um, and then otherwise, just sort of a block size, I try to just sort of follow apples because I think you guys have a... Yeah, we, we've got, yeah, we've got more, more standardized kind of approaches. So I typically, I mean, for, you know, for someone who's starting out trying to get an idea, then I, you know, typically recommend something like a four hectare block. Um, But I mean, then that kind of increases with size, because that's totally different with, you know, someone who only say has about a four hectare farm versus one who's, you know, over 100. But so trying to find a, a block size that's representative of the orchard that you're in whatever that may be and again as you said time is also a a factor so you know I I usually say most typical scouts would be about what maybe two hours three if you're being really thorough so something that you can kind of cover in that time period but but as you said Melanie though that you know for some pests that we have in apples there's you know, designated threshold. Um, and so once, you know, you reach those those limits, then it kind of exceeds that spray threshold. But um, so just to kind of make things easier, just for the, the math side of things, then a lot of times, you know, the recommendation is say, you know, in this block of four hectares, then we're talking, you know, 10 trees, 10 terminals per tree. So you end up with a hundred terminal count and therefore you can kind of, you know, adjust to the threshold and, and compare to the threshold a little bit easier. Um, but those were also set when we were working with semi-dwarf trees, large trees, larger spacings. So then we also then kind of have to adjust now that we're moving towards high density that maybe taking 10 terminals from a tree might be basically looking at all the terminals that are there. So you might think more trees, less terminals, that it all works out to, you know. So that, yeah, it's it's a lot of fine tuning and kind of doing what what works best for your crop. But I don't, Wendy, do you, when someone's approaching, say, grapes, um, do you have kind of recommendations? Do you, do you include particular varieties like what Melanie mentioned? My inclination would be to go with your most susceptible varieties as when it comes to disease. Yeah. Um, so Chardonnay is an example of our go-to for powdery and downy. And when it comes to Botrytis, um, a tight clustered variety like Pinots or Riesling would be what you'd be looking at. Uh, some of it depends on the history of the farm. So if mm-hmm. there are hot spots, then I would recommend making sure that the hot spots are included things that Mm -hmm. you know have a history of either the disease or the insect. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And then that they're kind of the canary in the coal mine sort of thing. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of another thing, right? When you, when you do your, your scout, what you want, it's two things. You need to revisit those hot spots for sure, but you also want a sort of representative example of, of the field because the eye is drawn to the pest problem. And so you can have say certain caterpillars that might lay an egg mass on a tree and the, the caterpillars will hatch out and completely defoliate that tree. But that's the only tree in the entire orchard that is defoliated. Uh, so you would be drawn to that tree. And on that tree, you would say, I have, you know, 80% defoliation, but averaged across the entire orchard, you do not actually have a lot of defoliation. So it's also important to, to sort of do two things when you're going to go across and whatever number of trees or plants you've picked to scout to say randomly select some that you're going to visit um, and to, to get that, that random picture of what's out there. But as you're walking, you do want to look for pest problems and go in and flag those trees and then you will want to revisit them next week. But you also want those, those randomly selected ones that you've just picked 
um, and then counted the number of pests there to get that that sort of average amount across all plants. Makes so sense. we, I'll do something like I'll take 15 steps. I won't look. I'll kind of keep my eyes open for things that are different, but I won't do my sampling until I've taken 15 steps. And then I'll stop wherever I am and look at the, the vines of the trees that I'm at. And okay. And so then say, so you do that, those 15 steps, you stop, do you immediately go in and, you know, start looking at the leaves or how do you approach the plant that you're about to look at? So the first thing that I would do would probably be to stand back and look over the entire plant. Uh, In some of my crops, we have real issues with very jumpy insects like uh, leafhoppers. So if you walk right up to the plant, uh, the leafhoppers will jump off. I see that, but I know that, say I have a a brand new summer student doing the scouting, they don't even notice the leafhoppers jumping off the plant. So I try Mm -hmm. to get them to stand back and look. Um, before they walk into the plant and then and sort of look the look at the entire plant the entire tree um, from the ground up and and then walk in and then and then pick those random terminals and look at them closely yeah and again it would depend on what I'm doing so if I if it's the winter and I'm in hazelnuts looking for eastern filbert blight then I'm going to walk right up to the tree and I'm going to get out my binoculars and I'm going to go up and down and look for those cankers. And you're actively looking for those. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm not worried about uh, insects at that time of year. Right. Um, But in the summer, I would probably stand back, um, especially with somebody who is is not used to getting that eye for insects flying off as you walk towards the, the plant. Yeah. Well, and even too, like, I mean, as you said before about understanding kind of the biology of the pest and where the damage is found. Well, so, okay, we have, you know, trunk bores. Well, you're not going to see, if you're just looking at the foliage, you're not going to see anything. What you need to be doing is looking down at, you know, the burr knots around the graft union at the base of the tree. So stepping back and really seeing the whole plant as, you know, itself, right, gives you a really good indication of what you might be walking into, so to say. And you get that picture. So if you are standing back and you see that you have uh, parts of the tree that seem to be dying off, Mm -hmm. then you're going to want to walk up to that. But you want to remember that the problem at the end of the tree could be coming from the roots or lower down. There could be a canker uh, lower down that's causing that. So then once you go to the terminal and you examine the terminals, you're going to want to look at that damage. And if you don't see an obvious cause of damage, then you're going to want to follow it down and look closely at the base of that branch or the base of the tree and look for a canker or something else that could be uh, clogging up the vascular system and and causing, say, wilting of the leaves. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, Wendy, what would you say are the benefits to kind of knowing the surroundings of a field as well? So the outer, the periphery of the, the vineyard or the orchard or hopyard could uh, provide a source of inoculum for disease or insects that would move in. So understanding where overwintering occurs, uh, looking at whether there are low spots or high spots, because low spots are going to be where cold accumulates. So you're more likely to see things like crown gall and grapevine. Um, If if you're close to say a, a wooded area, then that can be a host for um, wild, wild crop. Uh, so like with hazelnuts, there's wild hazelnuts that could be a source for um, Easter filbert blight or uh, oak trees can can be a source of uh, some insect pests that attack the nuts. So I might look more closely along the edge because there can be an edge effect. 
Yeah, the same would apply for something like black knot that can move in from wild cherries or wild plums into an orchard. So, so I guess there's a couple I wanted to kind of, at some point, I wanted to talk about terminology. And I think we've thrown out a couple of the, the words I wanted to ask about anyways. But so um, what, what do you define as the border? So when you're talking about kind of those perimeter effects, then is border a defined perimeter? Like, is there, is it, is, is it a specific distance into the, from, from the edge or? Really depends on the past. Yeah. Because some pests are going to be more mobile than others. Okay. Another thing you'd have to consider is uh, predominant wind direction. So our predominant wind is from the southwest. So thinking about direction, whatever's to the southwest, your your block would be of importance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it, it's also, that's important in terms of if you're doing regular checks, so, for example, with, uh, I don't know, with leafhoppers, if you're close to a hay field and you're checking really frequently, checking that edge w- mm-hmm. will hopefully catch the leafhoppers entering the field. But if you're only checking it once a month, um, then if you've missed, say, when they've cut the hay and the leafhoppers move over, um, then they're they're already going to be in the center of your field. For sure. Yeah. And it's same like plum curculio, right? That they're, you know, they're moving in from the edge. Well, the threshold is sign of first damage along the perimeter well so so if you're not in there on a regular basis around the time when they're starting to emerge then yeah you're gonna you're gonna miss that but then on the other hand if if you know something like um i don't know drift or uh some kind of a a sand blasting well that's probably only going to be affecting that edge of your field right next to where the source of the of the problem came in. It's not mm-hmm. going to, going to drift in. So it is going to depend. Yeah. So, okay. So along the same lines, then in terms of the terminology, one of the other things we brought up earlier, I, I think actually it was, I'm guilty of it. Um, the talk of terminals. So a lot of times new scouts usually say, what the heck are you talking about when you say, look at the number of terminals. So can either one of you <laughs> explain what is a terminal? You brought it up. You I know, I know, I'm I know. guilty of it, right? I know. <laughs> so, so I consider, I'd consider terminals then being the the growth, the new growth um, at the end of, in particular, with the with the tree at the end of the the branch. So it's that that year's growth that you're looking at, and that's where a lot of the pest activity is going to be. You know, insects and some disease are um, drawn to, you know, that new, that fresh new growth. So, um, so yeah, so looking from that spot. So when you're doing a scout, you're not looking at this big, you know, 10 foot branch. I mean, that's far-fetched, but you know what I mean? But, um, instead you're looking at just that new year's growth. That's what we kind of count as a terminal. I'm not sure if others would agree. Well, and so with that, that works for, uh, for things like trees and with hazelnuts, we tend to try to copy that just because we have, uh, no set terminology, although we it's it's again, it's young growth. It's not always at the very end of the tree like apples, but we do look at that young growth and we always try to look around a nut cluster mm-hmm. because that is is where you really care about the damage. But in in hops, of course, because it it dies down every year and comes up, um, it it's it's there's no terminal, but we are looking predominantly or or the majority of what we're looking at would be sort of that young tissue because that's where um some of the issues tend to happen. So you would be starting with uh, the young tissue coming up as the, as the vines come up, but then as they, um, as they put out side arms, you're going to want to check those side arms as well. 
Okay. So when we talk about young tissue, another term would be suckers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just and that's that common perfect. for both tree fruit and for grapes. So for pears, for example, we'll look at suckers for which are young shoots that come off more the main trunk than the fruiting areas, and those are prime locations to look for psylla in pears. And suckers on grapevines that come up from the ground are often a, a really great place to look for initial downy mildew infections. Yeah, that's really true. We have uh, with with downy mildew and hops that's systemic in the plants, so actually they can produce these systemically infected shoots. They're really easy to see early in the season, but then as we get this this huge amount of sucker growth at the base of the hop plant, you kind of have to dig through those to look for those systemically infected shoots. Um, and the goal is always for the grower to try to clear them out, but there's often such an overwhelming amount of growth that it just sort of keeps uh, keeps coming back and you have to hunt through that to look for, for things like downy, especially because it's really dense growth, creates a very high humidity environment, especially if it's around a drip line, and that can really promote the spread of disease. So you want to dig around in there. There are suckers, sucker pests that are important in apples too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and any, well, I mean, big concern is with, with root suckers um, is looking at rootstock fire blight. Um, that's, it's a big concern and, and that can enter in through those suckers through any sort of kind of leaf feeding insects. So leaf hopper and leaf curling midge and all that, that, that kind of open things up. But, um, and the water sprouts, the big thing, one, one pest that really loves water sprouts is woolly apple aphid. And a lot of times it can kind of, go undetected until you're right at the end of harvest and it's all it ends up getting all over your your clothes and arms and everything but um but so water sprouts are a really good thing to kind of check around when you're scouting to look for them for that early detection what's a water sprout yeah well, well sorry yeah we call them water sprouts well, some people call them water sprouts same same thing as the suckers right the the new growth on you know trunk or or branches a lot of times it's where it's been injured or following pruning cuts or or things like that Sorry, see, I'm throwing out new terminology. <laughs> Some, sometimes we differentiate between suckers and water sprouts, as in the suckers will come from the rootstock. Yep. Whereas the water sprouts will be buds that latent buds that break on the the cyan part of the on tree, the on the tree the itself. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention, uh, because we have a lot of young hazelnuts in Ontario right now, is a lot of growers use tree guards, um, mm. and they might be those ones that are easily removed, that the one or some that might not, and they'll leave it on for a year or two. Um, and it's really important to look down there as well, because which you got to be cautious because there can be mice and bees and all kinds of things in there but uh you do get this accumulation of tree debris and stuff like that and so you can have a lot of um lesions and diseases and all kinds of things forming down there so it's really important to look in there yeah it kind of Japanese beetles love that yeah they do. and boars yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah, it kind of, it's that fine balance, right? After a little bit, then it all of a sudden becomes a detriment having those tree guards out. For sure. So so then what would you say with that? The, with the tree guards, do people, should people be cleaning them out on a regular basis? And does a person scout behind them? What, what do you say with that? I think you definitely need to check them. Yeah. Um, and I do think it's a good idea to clear them out if you're going to keep them on. Um, really, I, I would just like to see them on for, you know, just that first year. Um, but uh, if they're, you're keeping them on, then I would clear them out, although I recognize that it is a pain 
uh, for growers. And it's quite quite labor intensive, but certainly for a scout, you do need to look in there. Mm-hmm. So going back to Melanie, your, your comment about, um, about mildew and, and the disease spread, I wanted to kind of touch a little bit on biosecurity practices, just because we're talking about, you know, moving through a field, um, from place to place looking for particular issues. So how do you handle the threat of biosecurity? Say if there is a known, first of all, let's approach it, that you know that you've got an issue in a block. How do you approach your scouting? So if it was a a, a very, you know, it was an, an infectious disease in the plant, then that would be, that block would be the last one I would visit. So I would never want to move from uh, from a clean block or say an older block that had a disease into one, uh, you know, a newly planted one that did not. So you're going from less infected to more infected. Um, you're going to want to clean any equipment. So if you've had to um, take your knife out to cut off a sample, then that should be sterilized between trees. Um, and if you are walking through an area that is uh, infected, um, consider wearing something like booties or sterilizing your hands and boots after you've left there. Um, so those are some things that come to mind right now. Wendy, do you have any thoughts? We don't usually worry that much. The only thing that I think about would be something like uh, mealybugs that can hitchhike from an infested vineyard to an uninfested vineyard on on workers or clothing. So being aware of where these are and uh, making sure that you try to work in clean blocks first and progressively move into um, infested blocks. Yeah, and certainly for hops, for example, where they're, the older yards can have a lot of virus, and especially if a grower has um, has a brand new yard, then um, I would always be wanting to start with that younger yard and then move into the older yards because virus is not always obvious, um, but uh, you can assume that there's going to be more in, in, in an older yard than there is in a younger one. So mm-hmm. that's the other thing to consider. And, and weather conditions, I think, are a big thing too, right? Like, so I think of fire blight and, and ooze and that this, that can last, you know, all, all season long, depending on the, the vigor of the trees and how much growth they're producing. And so, I mean, like you said, Wendy, of, you know, picking up on clothes and stuff like that, anybody kind of walking around and moving through a tree that's actively oozing, then they're just transmitting the bacteria throughout the rest of the orchard. So yeah, it's kind of keeping an eye on if these, if the conditions are kind of ideal, for spread, then it's maybe not the best to be moving around too much in those blocks. Or taking precautions by having, um, everybody's got sanitizing wipes now. So making mm-hmm. sure that you use those, use those between, between blocks at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And certainly uh, for crops that have a lot of disease issues, especially those diseases that are spread by rain, then scouting you know, in rain or shortly after rain is, is not a good idea. So you Mm -hmm. want to wait till the crop is dry. That's less so for maybe not quite as extreme for a tree fruit, but certainly for a crop like ginseng, which we're not touching on right now, but that would be one you wouldn't want to go into a wet field. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So we talked about kind of someone who has a designated scouting program and kind of the, you know, the basics of, of what to do and, and how to work through it. But 
it was mentioned, you know, about how really in terms of the amount of time you spend, anything is better than nothing. Let's talk about a busy grower that doesn't have time to scout. So what do you suggest they do for some kind of monitoring program? So that's true for a lot of my growers because there aren't a lot of scouts for specialty crops. Um, and so, uh, like I said, I always say something is better than nothing. So like what you said, Christy, is, you know, like 10, 10 trees and then 10 terminals per tree is, you know, what I, I would like to see them do. But it's, it's what can you stick with through the summer? Um, what can you, can you manage to do? And can you, because you as the grower are, are very, very busy. Do you have an employee who you can train and then that can be your designated scout who can just take care of doing that. You know, that they know that's their job every Monday afternoon. They have to walk through. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really good. Um, and then um, as as you see things, you know, uh, flag it so you know to go back and visit it. And that's also if you're if you're out there pruning and you do notice uh, a disease area, flag that and visit that. Um, but really, that doesn't replace that whole sort of walking through. Um, walking through the the orchard for the purpose of scouting. So um, I don't like to give a minimum number. I mean, obviously you don't want to be doing only one or two, but um, anything is better than than not doing it at all. Mm -hmm. I know that a lot of my growers, workers have been with them for several years and they know what to look for. So they're often the first ones to find something when they're doing their youth their routine operations, hand operations in the, in the orchard or the vineyard. And that, yeah. And I like, I like that eh? to kind of take advantage of they're in the orchard doing other activities already that to have kind of that base knowledge of, you know, if they notice something, then you've kind of got that monitoring already in the bag then. Even if they don't know what it is, that they know that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they'll, yeah. they'll bring it to the the attention of the grower and the grower will either know where it is or they'll ask for help. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. So it's always a, a nice idea to just sort of give give all this, the employees sort of a, a sense of what what is the tree supposed to be looking like at that time of year so that they know when it shouldn't be looking like that so they can at least flag it for you. So and so that kind of comes in line with another question I was going to ask because, you know, especially I'm thinking Melanie hops, but, but, you know, both Wendy and I working in, in tree fruit as well, but um, that dealing with these, these large crops, how do you handle scouting those pests or issues that may show up in the top of the canopy when you've got this height issue that you have to deal with? Some of us aren't as short as you guys. <laughs> I know, I know, that's true. Yeah, but I don't think the any, average person. Not, not many of us are twenty feet tall, so I, I feel like I'm not only a disadvantage in hops. Only our egos. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and that's a real challenge with hops. I have had issues uh, where uh, you know I've had a student not know to look up. And they have missed the onset of Japanese beetles because they love the top wire of a hop trellis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so uh, if you don't look up, you miss that until they've defoliated half the plant. So it's really hard once hops are at the top wire. So uh, we tend to kind of scout with binoculars and look up at the top 
Um, we try to take samples from as high up as we can. And yes, Wendy, I do try to use someone who is taller than me <laughs> to get some uh, leaf samples a, a little bit higher up. Um, certainly when the grower has the ladder out and is up there doing whatever work, I would encourage them to grab a couple of cones and, and take a look. Same thing with hazelnuts if you're if you're up pruning or whatever. Um, you know, you could take a look at some of the nuts higher up in the canopy. Um, to look for some of your pests. Uh, but certainly with a really tall hot plant or even say in the winter when I'm looking for sort of gypsy moth egg masses on a tall hazelnut tree, binoculars are really helpful. Hmm. And Wendy, your drone would be helpful. Uh, hey, right. The future <laughs> yes. of drones that that would yeah. be, yeah, that'd be a good thing. And, and from a disease standpoint too, I mean, the importance of scouting the top canopies, can you comment on that? So a lot of the time when when sprayers are not giving adequate coverage, the top is where you're going to find most of the insect or, or pest pressure. So you're looking at fire blight or uh, oriental fruit moth strikes and peaches, or stone fruit, um, scylla in injury. So um, our trees aren't normally 20 feet tall, so it's not quite as much of a problem, but Standing back is pretty much, I've never used binoculars. For, yeah, for things like Japanese beetle, right, that are so, you know, quite, quite distinct, I think that that can work. And same with, I know that's kind of a recommendation sometimes for, for brown marmor stink bug as well. But it's tough when you start to get into those smaller, either those smaller pests or those foliar issues, trying to see from the, the top. I know with scab, there's a lot of times with apple scab, people get caught that, you know, mid-season, all of a sudden they're starting to find all of these lesions and trying to figure out where it's coming from. And it's been trickling down from the top because as you said, with that, that poor spray coverage, or then you get, bite. right. Yeah. You get the escapes up at the top and it's, it's easy to miss those if you're not actively looking up there. I think opera glasses would be. A <laughs> go, go gadget opera, opera glasses. <laughs> I think it's, it's just important to remember to try to get the whole, the whole plant. And so um, if you don't have binoculars, then that, that whole thing about standing back and looking mm -hmm. up and down. Um, and then if you do see something sort of suspicious up towards the top of the tree, um, then, then you maybe need to investigate, especially if it seems to be getting worse. And if that's a pull pruner, which you can use in hops or just getting up on the ladder, if you absolutely have to, um, then, you know, just, just remembering that there, there are pest issues up there too. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so another kind of difficult to scout issue, uh, most of our, our crops we're talking about today are on trellis systems. So, I mean, before with apples, you know, we'd say walk a zigzag through the orchard or, you know, a, a W pattern or whatever you want to do. Um, and it would be easy enough to cut through from row to row. So how do you handle trying to get a random sample of looking from both sides of the plant when you've got a trellis system? So for hops, early in the season, uh, before they have filled in, you can sort of pop through as long as you're being careful not to step on the, the hops uh, that are growing up from the ground. Uh, later in the season, I tend to just pick certain rows to walk up. And then I'm looking at one side of one row and the other side of the other. Um, or you can walk up one row, look at one side, walk down the other row, look at the other side of the plant and then skip a few rows, but just make sure that next week you do different rows. 
Um, but that it can be a real challenge working with the trellis. I agree. Um, I, I look at it as most of our rows are planted north and south in grapevines anyway. So the east side of the vine or the tree in a trellis is going to get morning sun. The west side is going to get afternoon sun. So if you're looking for fungal diseases, typically the east side is the one that's going to have more dew, less drying. So um, <clears throat> I do what Melanie had suggested and pick your spot, look at the vine to the left or the tree to the left, look to the tree to the right, and that way you're getting representation of both directions. Yeah, and then that allows you to cover more ground. And then if there is a real issue with the plant, then you're going to have to flag it. And then you're just going to have to, once you're done your random scouting, go back around and look at the other side and, and, and investigate further if you can't figure it out from the side you happen to be looking on. Good, because I'm tired of doing deep squats to get underneath those wires. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah, I do believe that that drones would be a really helpful scouting tool. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's going to give us an, an idea of, of what's going on where we can't see very well from the ground. Mm -hmm. Completely. So when you're, when you're looking at a drone, you want to make sure that uh, you're following all of the rules as far as uh, legislation, whether you need to have a license. Um, I've bought one myself that's 249 grams which means that I don't have to have a license, but it still has great, great, uh, takes great images and video. So keep that in mind and so make sure that you're operating it in a safe way, not around Wendy, people. If, if you're interested in a drone, I think you can, you can Google drones in, in Transport Canada and they do have a page with lots of information about what you need to know to legally operate drones in Ontario. Uh, yeah, I think one of the limitations is is uh, airspace. So you need to make sure you're operating in a place that's safe. Yeah, it would, I think it's a really interesting kind of future of scouting is this whole idea of drone drone work. Well, so, okay, so then that, that kind of brings up another question too. Um, there's been a movement as well towards automated trapping. So... There's a few companies, things are commercialized with, with camera traps. Um, any comments from an automated trapping standpoint of you're looking at, you know, the pictures you get on your computer, but also the traps that, you know, you are manually checking. How does trapping compare to scouting? Do they coexist? Does trapping outweigh what you're doing in the in the field? How do you guys handle that? Well, I, I think trapping complements what you're doing in the field, um, depending on, on what pest you're looking for. So certainly um, things like, I think, Christian, in apples, you, you're using that for your, your codling moth and other things to time sprays. Um, and in hazelnut, uh, we we don't have as many pests that we need to to trap for, but uh, like having a filbert worm trap out um, does not allow you to diagnose filbert worm. But uh, sometimes if we just look at our nuts at the end of the season and crack them open and find damage, we don't know if that was filbert worm or if it was hazelnut weevil. So if we've had a filbert worm trap out, that can help us 
um, say, you know, if we were catching filbert worm, then that was probably filbert worm, or it may have been filbert worm. But um, it all does definitely depend on the pest. So certainly for something like Japanese beetle, well, they sell traps, but uh, Japanese beetles are number one, so large and so obvious, you don't really need a trap to see them. And those Japanese beetle traps can actually attract more Japanese beetles than you had without the trap. So uh, in that case, I, I wouldn't think it would be uh, beneficial. For something like great berry moth, the standard recommendation is to uh, evaluate at least 100 fruit, 100 clusters, as well as using the trap counts, just because sometimes the trap counts will not give you all the information you need. Completely. And the same with, with oriental fruit moth. You want to look at the fruit and the, the foliage and the trees, as well as looking at the traps. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So how about thresholds then? Can either of you kind of give a Coles Notes version of what do we mean by thresholds? We've moved away from a scorched earth approach. IPM basically means that you can tolerate a certain amount of damage before you actually have to take action. So you need to balance the cost of making the control, whatever it is, and the amount of loss that you might incur if you don't take that action. You don't have to take action at the first sign of something for most of the, the insects, at least. So how, so how is that level set? Typically, back in the day when they developed that, that was based on scientific studies where they would actually go out and they would do all kinds of protocols to develop that threshold. So you have to go out and you sample this number of leaves on this number of trees and you get to this level and they've done a model and then that... Um, that gives you a number, which is your threshold. Um, for my crops, at least out out in the east, because a lot of my crops, they, they might have developed thresholds in the west or in the area of origin, but we they don't exist here. So we don't- You mean like, sorry, do you mean like the west of North, North America? I'm sorry, Western North America. Yeah, okay. I should be clear. Um, so certainly for hops and hazelnuts there, I think there's been some work out in Western North America, but there aren't, there that data is, is not necessarily applicable here. So we don't really have any thresholds scientifically established for a lot of our major pests. So what we have been trying to do is do sort of as a guideline, some combination of what threshold do they use for that or a related pest, say in Oregon, where they have some numbers. Um, and if they have a similar pest on say apples and you have a threshold, then we might sort of use that as a guide, but I would never use it as the threshold for the basis of sort of long-term decisions. Um, so then it really becomes a question of gaining some experience, you know, and that's why, again, why um, I think Wendy said earlier, that's why we scout. It helps us track the success of our spray. So you've been scouting, you scouted before, you scouted after, you know, that, that can give you some experiences. Okay, I, I sprayed too late. I'm going to need to do it earlier. Um, so, so for some crops, that's, there's no scientific data on which to base it. So those that like, Wendy, I know you, you've got some, some thresholds set for some of your crops. And so, I mean, those that are established, say in other jurisdictions, other regions can't just be used here or can they? I'm not comfortable with taking things that are developed elsewhere without validating under our conditions with our yeah. varieties. Yeah. Um, I was going to say that I support Melanie in that 
for some of our thresholds that we've developed, for example, for leafhoppers, rather than counting individual insects, we look at the amount of damage and the location of the damage, and that's been based on empirical evaluations in the field over many years, as opposed to actually doing a controlled scientific study. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the one of the problems I find in, in apples, I mean, a lot of those thresholds, again, were set in the larger semi-dwarf trees, right? Whereas now we're moving towards these dwarfing rootstocks, then you know, how much does that change? Can the can the tree truly withstand the same amount of pressure as, you know, those larger trees? Or do those thresholds need to be revisited again? So I think, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a mixture of using those classical thresholds, but also then incorporating, you know, your own understanding and history on your own farm. Yeah, I think it's a struggle because even for these established crops like apples, we, we don't have as many researchers out there doing the, the threshold research that's really necessary, but it is still important to be considering uh, the this concept that is a small level of damage does not necessarily warrant immediately going in and applying a control. And we certainly see that with some defoliators, um, you know, maybe on a very young tree, uh, you might need to control at a low level, but at a, but for mature trees, if you just have a few caterpillars out there and and doing some damage, typically. Uh, a healthy tree can tolerate some level of damage uh, without having a significant impact on yield. And so you don't necessarily need to go in uh, and spray just because you have some leaves being defoliated. Mm-hmm. And that leads to direct versus indirect damage. So the thresholds for indirect pests that are not directly affecting the the crop that you're harvesting can be tolerated at to a greater degree than ones that are directly affecting the fruit mm-hmm. or the the flowers when it comes to hops. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Also for those, the, it kind of goes to the next level then with those indirect pests too, that that can change as the canopy grows, that it can withstand larger populations. So thinking mites, the threshold increases throughout the this, this season. So yeah, there's kind of various sides to things depending on the pests, the timing, all of that. And the health of your plant as well. I was just going to ask about that too. Yeah. So how does kind of the uh, plant health and stressors, abiotic stressors, how does that come into play with pest management and scouting? So for sure, like, uh, you know, you've seen with, uh, we see with gypsy moth, for example, like you have one season and a mature tree with a a healthy tree with some gypsy moth defoliation and the tree will do okay. Uh, But then if you have several years in a row where the tree is being attacked by gypsy moth, um, then it's it's each year there's it's photosynthetic capacity is being reduced and then it becomes less able to handle it or if you get um I don't, some kind of pest damage so disease damage of a very very healthy tree it might be able to withstand that but if the tree had winter injury um or there was attacked by another pest and it's weakened it might be less able to withstand that damage what i find in in peaches is and plums is that certain varieties tend to be more attractive as opposed to being more stressed. So for insect damage, I would agree. Although um, 
although I know I, what uh, Jed Llewellyn, our nursery crop specialist, was pointing out that repeated gypsy moth defoliation can be more damaging than just one year of, which I thought was really interesting. But I'm thinking for hazelnuts with bacterial blight, a hazelnut tree can withstand bacterial blight if it is not moisture stressed. But if it is moisture stressed or it doesn't have the proper nutrient balance or it has had some winter injury or all of the above, uh, then it, it just seems to be much more affected by, by bacterial blight, which is not as major of a pathogen for us as, say, eastern filbert blight. But on a young tree with repeated years of, of moisture stress, bacterial blight can get in and kill the tree where it might not otherwise have. And, I, you know, I always kind of say the same thing of, you know, you enter, you enter a room, your immune system may be really strong. You enter a room with a lot of, a lot of sick people, you might be able to withstand it. Whereas if you're stressed, if you're feeling really run down and you do that, you're more likely to kind of take on what's around you. And I think that, you know, if you're dealing with a stressed plant, that they're less able to withstand some of the other, the issues that may be kind of around it. One of the, one of the things that um, has been brought up about bitter rot of apples is the idea of um, the actual heat stress of the fruit that the, you know, the internal temperature of the fruit is just that much higher than the ambient air temperature and that it uh, is enough to kind of block off the immune functions of the fruit to the point where the bitter rot pathogen is able to take over. And so one of the recommendations then is to, you know, if you see that there's coming up to these kind of heat stretches um, or potential lengths without any rain, then, you know, we're encouraging irrigation. It's also thinking about putting on sun protectants, those sort of things to help kind of keep the tree itself able to fight off a little bit more. That's a recommendation in hazelnuts for young trees um, that you make sure that they have adequate moisture um, because it helps them establish and, and resist bacterial blight because bacterial blight tends to only kill the trees in the first, say, seven, seven to 10 years um, of the orchard, you know, and after right. which. And so if you keep them um, adequately irrigated, that can, can really help the tree withstand any kind of uh, infection by bacterial blight. It's true, though, that the season will influence what pests you can expect to see as well in terms of your scouting. A really rainy spring or summer, then you're going to see more disease issues, but you might not see as many mite issues. But if it dries up, so in hops, the minute it dries up, we're really happy because we don't see as much downy mildew, but then it's dry and dusty and then the mites start to to increase. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you apply that to the threshold idea, then the amount that a a plant can tolerate is going to be less if it is stressed. So your threshold decreases for certain pests anyway. Yeah. The other thing with, at least with hazelnuts, but I think with other tree fruit, if they're planted in suboptimal soil. So if you plant them in really heavy soil where the roots can never get really dry, then we can see root diseases that we don't normally see in hazelnuts just because, um, you know, there's path soil-borne pathogens that are just always there. And if it's nice and wet and they can spread and the tree is a little bit more stressed because it's wet and it can never dry out, then they can get in there um, and and really cause some issues in the tree, but that you wouldn't normally see in optimal soil. Yeah. Okay. I've got you guys for only a couple more questions, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I'm curious to know, um, what are your key things that you recommend for a person to have in their scout toolkit? Oh, well, for me, because I'm old and blind, a hand lens with as high (laughs) of a magnification as I possibly can. Um, I also really like to have um, now, actually, Christy, you're the one who put me onto this, but um, you can buy these lenses to put on your phone that allow you to take uh, sort of macro enlarged images. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll take the picture and then look at it on my phone to uh, <laughs> to help me diagnose really small things like mites that I don't otherwise see. Um, so that's really important. Um, flagging tape. Um, I do keep sort of like a knife if I need to cut something off, although I tend to, to use that sparingly because I don't want to damage the tree um notebook bags for collecting things what am i not thinking of wendy a table of the re-entry intervals restricted entry intervals for pesticides to make sure that it's safe for going in Mm -hmm. uh cooler with a cold pack because leaf and uh, fruit samples don't stand up very well in a hot vehicle for the in the summer for sure and disposable Mm -hmm. gloves and now that we're they're everywhere, hand sanitizer and wipes. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. Or alcohol if you did have to take a sample and you need to clean off your equipment. Um, or you have a rough day. <laughs> uh, not that kind of alcohol. <laughs> Rubbing alcohol is what I was thinking. I wouldn't want to be drinking that. Um, and if you are using, uh, tr- if you're trapping, um, obviously you, you know, right. pheromones for changing, but I, I do like to have extra traps mm-hmm. so that if it has accidentally blown down, you can replace it. Or rain. Cause I find the lifespan of things like diamond traps are really only a few weeks if we've got a pretty wet season. Mm-hmm. And the cooler pack also helps with the pheromones because you want to keep them cool. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So pheromones, let's just, let's just comment on that. So if you're going to use a pheromone that season, do all pheromones last for a full season? No. No. Especially, well, not once it's out in the field. Uh, the ones that you order, depending on what you're using, um, you're going to want to, as soon as you get them, put them in the fridge or the freezer. They'll last longer in the freezer, but some some like baits for spotted winter sofala won't go in the freezer. Uh, but then you're going to, when you take them out into the field, depending on what you're, what you're using, you're going to need to change it once a month. Um, I, I am doing a project with uh, European corn borer and those lures need to be changed every two weeks. Wow. Um, wow. So according to the, the, when you order them, the, the supplier of the pheromone should tell you how often they need to be changed. Yeah. Well, and, and with, uh, with the length, sometimes um, for, for some of the pests where it's, you know, really discrete generations, then, uh, then we usually say just switch up the lures at the end of the generation, just rather yep. than trying to keep track of everything. It's just once they, once you see trap numbers drop down, switch up the lures and you're fresh for the next generation. Mm-hmm. And then also when you're changing lures, uh, some of them are quite potent. So if you just use your bare hands. Mm-hmm. And then you change the lure, then your hands can then sometimes start attracting insects. So yeah, yeah. And if you're and if you're working with multiple species, so if you're if you're changing the lures of you know for us something like oriental fruit moth and codling moth, then ideally wearing disposable gloves and switching those, getting rid of them, putting on fresh gloves before you handle the next lure 
because then you're not working with cross-contamination. Yeah, for sure. All right. So this is it. Last question I've got for you, and it's an easy one. What's your take-home message for anyone who's wanting to improve their scouting program? (laughs) Melanie, how about you first? (laughs) Um, Well, I've said it several times throughout this, but I always said for my crops, something is better than nothing. So starting, uh, in many cases, just developing a program and doing it would is is important or finding someone to do it for you uh whether it be an employee or a, or a professional scout um and then also getting to know your pests understanding your pests i guess that's what i what's coming to mind right now maybe maybe wendy's comments will inspire me to think of something else regularity is important so make sure that you have a, a system in place and that you keep excellent records and definitely monitor for changes from one week to the next. Mm-hmm. For sure. I like it. I like it. Well, it's awesome. Okay. I could talk to you guys all day, but I'm not going to for your sake. So <laughs> thank you both for joining. Really appreciate it. We're going to put up the, the link for the Crop IPM resources on the show notes um, and anything else that may be of benefit for scouts this year. But as as Wendy mentioned at the very beginning too, that we uh, we do offer the, the spring, early summertime, a lot of the hort crops do offer IPM workshops. So you can get uh, get some ideas of the dates for those this year. Um, they'll be posted on our blog but again links for that will be on the show notes so thanks again Melanie and Wendy great talking to you really appreciate everything that you shared today thanks for having us stay safe I was just speaking with Dr. Wendy McFadden-Smith horticulture IPM specialist for tender fruit and grape and Dr. Melanie Philitas, Horticulture IPM Specialist for Specialty Crops with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Affairs. Thanks for tuning into the episode today. I'm Christy Greg McGuffin for the What's Grown On podcast. For more information on horticulture grown in Ontario, check out the links to our fruit, vegetable, and specialty crop blogs in the show notes. Music from this episode is the track Aspire from Scott Holmes. I'll be back soon with an all-new episode of What's Growing On, but in the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for a topic you'd like to see covered, please send an email to onhortcrops at gmail.com. That's O-N, hortcrops at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>